Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. We're happy you joined us for another edition of Al Bernstein Unplugged, where we get a chance to chat with the biggest names in uh, boxing and often in sports broadcasting. And that's the case on this episode because we're chatting with Jim Gray, uh, my colleague at Showtime and a man who has carved out a a very renowned career uh, in sports television over almost 40 years. And we're going to talk about Jim's new book, uh, a memoir called Talking to Goats, Of course, what that means is the greatest of all times, which he did talk about in virtually every sport, even though we'll concentrate a little more on the boxing end of it, obviously. Uh, But it's a fun conversation with Jim, and the book is an excellent read, so I heartily recommend it uh, to anyone. As you know, we also uh, answer your questions, and uh, to help me do that and other things, here's my co-host, Mr. Tripp Mitchell. Hey, Tripp, how are you? I am doing great, Al, and it is amazing. It's already May. We're literally a third of the way, not literally, but actually a third of the way through the year. What are your thoughts on the sport of boxing in the first four months? Yeah, I think it's been a terrific um, first third of the year. I I think that uh, we've had a number of good fights. I count at least a dozen really, really good matches that have been on uh you know, we just got done with a weekend of boxing that featured two exciting heavyweight fights across the pond from each other uh, uh, in, and a, a, a terrific woman's fight between Katie Taylor uh, and uh, Natasha Jonas. And I think the sport is off to a, an excellent start uh, in uh, in 2021. And it's really more than a start because, you know, we've, we've covered a, a good portion of the year. And when you look at the schedule coming up, you know, I just think there are terrific matches on on board uh, in every weight division. There's a number of title unification matches, uh, and it, it you know, including what is likely to, though it's not signed yet, what we know is going to happen: the uh, championship fight between Tyson Fury uh, and Anthony Joshua, um, and so many other great fights. So I'm I'm very enthused about uh, about the way this year is going in boxing, and you know, the sport came back pretty well from the pandemic when it came back in 2020, took a couple months for it to find its sea legs. And then by the end of the year, I thought it was rolling really well. And now I think uh, the same is true. Uh, Some terrific matches upcoming. Uh, We have a great schedule on Showtime. Uh, May 22nd, uh, you know, Jose Ramirez and Josh Taylor in a terrific title unification match and many other great matches. So uh, it should be an exciting time for fans of boxing. Okay, let's get to the questions. Third Eye Boxing asks, what fight made you fall in love with the sport of boxing? Ah, you know, there there were two choices here for me, and they were both in 1960. The one I could have used, but it came later, uh, was Sugar Ray Robinson and Gene Fulmer in a fight in which that was on. I watched on TV with my dad uh, at my side, uh, in which uh, Robinson and Fulmer fought to a draw. Though I don't think it was the appropriate decision. I was a big, I was a big fan of Sugar Ray Robinson at that point, and I, I, it hurt me deeply that it was a draw, and I, I think he got robbed. But it was a wonderful fight, and uh, that was thrilling. But the one that really initially pushed me into boxing in a way that made it, you know, indelible in my mind and uh, as part of my uh, sporting life as a fan was a fight uh, in June of that year, uh, June 20th to be exact, of 1960, when Floyd Patterson fought Ingemar Johansson. This was the second of their trilogy of heavyweight fights. And Patterson, a year earlier, had lost to Johansson, been stopped by him, uh, and Johansson took the heavyweight title away from Patterson. And this fight had, the rematch had received so much hype and attention, and (laughs) I didn't even see it. I, you know, it was in the 
it, it was being shown on uh, in the theaters, uh, like a pay-per-view, but in the theaters, which is the way it worked back then. So I had to listen to it on the radio. And I, li- I had this little transistor radio next to my uh, ear as I hid under the covers because I wasn't supposed to be up that late. <laughs> so my parents didn't know I was listening to this. And uh, it was so exciting. It made it even more exciting that it was on radio because I had these visions running through my head uh, of what was transpiring. And, of course, Floyd Patterson won in a fifth-round knockout, a thrilling uh, knockout with that giant left hook that knocked uh, Johansson out cold for a while. And it was an extraordinary uh, fight and so exciting. And it fired my 10-year-old imagination in a way that got me hooked on boxing. And uh, when the when the knockout came, I, I couldn't help myself. I kind of erupted. And uh, <laughs> I remember my mother walking and saying, what's going on in there? I said, oh, nothing, nothing. You know, it was like... <laughs> Trying to hide the fact that I'm listening to the radio, but it was it was very exciting, and that, I think that's the fight that got me so interested in boxing that I, uh, uh, you know, that I, I was never going to turn back for sure. Now, um, during that, shortly after that period, of course, is when uh, the great Muhammad Ali uh, got involved in the sport, and he is a integral part of the the interview that we're. Uh, that I'm doing for this show because uh, he plays an important role in the early career uh, of Jim Gray, who, of course, is my Showtime colleague and uh, a man who's just written his uh, memoir, uh, Talking to Goats, Greatest of All Times. And uh, Jim has had a, you know, a 40-year career in television that has included covering virtually every major sport. Uh, but boxing has, be, over the course of time, became an important part of that career. Uh, his work at Showtime, where he's been since 1992, has been a big part of that and all the major pay-per-views that he's done. And uh, in this interview, we revisit a lot of the memories that he has with the biggest names in the sport. Let's take a look at our chat with Jim Gray. Jim, boxing has played a, an inordinately big role in uh, in your uh, very big career. Uh, and while you've you know interviewed people from every single possible sport imaginable and beyond, uh, boxing's had a, a a key role. And it started out doing that because the most amazing thing I think that that people may learn from your book or, or be surprised at is that your very first interview was with Muhammad Ali. First interview I ever did was with Muhammad Ali. And I was a, I was an intern and I had become a videotape editor. And when I uh, was in editing my videotape, uh, I was a freshman in college. And I was editing the Broncos with Red Miller show, Al. Uh, he oh, was yeah. the Broncos coach at the time. And they were getting ready for the draft. And Ali was getting ready to fight uh, Leon Spinks. And after Leon Spinks, he was going to have an exhibition in Denver at the old Mile High Stadium, Bears Stadium became Mile High Stadium, against Lyle Alzado, who was a defensive lineman for the Denver Broncos. So at 7.15 in the morning, in came the assignment editor at the ABC Bureau, the ABC station there. Her name was Sue Too. She said, you know something about sports. You were the sports intern. I said, yeah. Why? Why do you ask? She said, well, Muhammad Ali's two and a half hours early at the airport. Run out and interview him, please. Well, back then, nobody had a cell phone, nobody had a pager, nobody had anything. It's 1978. You didn't answer your home phone at 7.15 in the morning. That was it. That was the end of it. They couldn't (laughs) find you. So if you were eating breakfast, out for a jog, in the shower, whatever it was, so they couldn't find any of the anchor people, they couldn't find any of the sports guys, so they sent me out. So I went into the weatherman's office, tried to put on his coat. He was a little itty-bitty guy, nothing fit. So I went out in my jeans and, and, and a shirt. And uh, there was Muhammad Ali. And I asked the first question. He said, you're doing this interview? (laughs) And I said, yeah. And the whole entourage started to laugh. Well, that laugh really helped me because when they were laughing, it it loosened me up. And no longer was I talking to the most famous man in the world, the great Muhammad Ali. I was just another guy. It was funny. By about the third or fourth question, Ali said, you sound like the local Howard Cosell. (laughs) That was the greatest compliment I'd ever had in my life. And so I took the uh, interview back. Ali gave me 45 minutes. I was editing myself out of it because they weren't going to put me on the evening news. And in walked the uh, head of the bureau. His name was Roger Ogden. He'd given me a job there, but 
we rarely conversed. He was busy. He had, you know, several hundred people uh, underneath him uh, that he was managing. Watched the, uh, he watched the interview for an hour and a half. He watched it twice. At the end of it, he said, I'm putting you and this interview on the air. It's barely adequate. So I tell everybody, Al, I've been barely adequate ever since. Barely adequate. High praise from, uh, from your boss. That's wild. That's crazy to be thrown into that uh, situation. What the irony to me is how, um, you know how how things tie in. And you tell a story in the book about how, uh, of course, you guys were in the Denver area. You used to drive by Sonny Liston's house on the holidays to look at his decorations, right? Sonny Liston lived in Denver, out by Old Stapleton International Airport on Monaco Parkway. And I can still see in my mind's eye, I still have a vivid memory of my dad taking me and my brothers every year by Sonny Liston's house. And he had a huge display on Monaco Parkway. Wow. And he had some of the prettiest, prettiest lights and colors. And, and every once in a while, he'd be outside at night and he would, you know, sign autographs or he would wave or, you know, he'd have you know, like a, like a St. Nicholas hat on, a, a Christmas hat on. And so, you know, it was always a big thing to be able to go by Sonny Liston's house. Well, I remember when he lost that night to uh, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. And my dad said, well, lights are out. That's it. He's done. Yeah. And my initial reaction was, what do you mean lights are out? We, we can't go to his house anymore. I didn't understand yeah, what yeah. that term meant. I was four years old, three or four yeah, years old. Yeah, yeah. You get the happened. irony. And, and the first thing that went into my mind is, we can't go by his house anymore. And my dad meant, no, he's he's out of the fight. Turn uh, like this is He was knocked out. And, yeah, uh, that's, pretty, but, that's uh, pretty wild. Sonny Liston um, was a you, big deal in Denver. Big, big Yeah, deal. yeah, that's fascinating. Now, now you, um, the, you mentioned Howard Cosell before, and you met Howard Cosell when you were very young in the business, and he gave you a very interesting piece of advice, didn't he? Get out of this business. Yeah. You're much too smart. Why would you want that? Why would you want to put yourself through this, this type of life? Children playing at television, I beg of you, do something with yourself. And he was kidding, and he was serious. And I didn't understand the serious nature of it because I hadn't been around any, you know, sure. I didn't know who he was talking about or what he was talking about. Uh, but he, uh, he, 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 was, he was very encouraging, but I never forgot that he said, you know, you're always going to be surrounded by people who are making decisions for you and your life won't be in your hands. Mm. Uh, that, you know, it can be very subjective. And, and, right. and we all know that's what television is and that's what, what any of entertainment is in, in, in media. And so uh, it was, it was, it's something that I laugh at now, uh, but it, but it was kind of you know it was kind of a warning and and it was it, it, in in some ways really instructive that you know don't don't ever take for granted the opportunities that you have because you never know you know how long they're going to last. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, luckily you didn't take that advice, or uh, we all wouldn't know you, and you wouldn't have provided the all the great interviews and great broadcasting that you've done. You're. Um, your dad was a was a big boxing fan, and so that kind of had an influence on you, you know, and, and your career of, uh, you know, as I said, a, a good portion of it had to do with boxing, has had to do with boxing. So it's it's interesting that by him taking you to the fights and being interested in was kind of helpful to you later. My dad really loved three sports. Uh, he loved to play golf. He loved to yeah. play racquetball and handball, which was big back in in, in his day. Uh, he played a little tennis with me, but my dad used to watch all the Bronco games and all the University of Colorado games. And then when there was a big fight, he would sit me in front of the TV and, you know, my brothers were older. So they were, uh, you know, a lot of the times right. they were out of the house out playing. And, and, and then of course they went on to college and, and, and on to their careers and so forth. And I was still just a little guy. So, you know, he would take me down to the Paramount theater and we would go watch the pay-per-views on, on the closed circuit. And uh, my dad just loved the fights and he would listen to the fights on the radio when they were on and uh, we'd go to the golden gloves. And so, you know, my dad, my dad was just, there was something about boxing that he really liked. And, and uh, you know, we kind of uh, would look forward to those fights and, and I, and he used to, he used to, you know, really get into it and he knew them and he knew about the fighters. I mean, he wasn't like you and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't searching for information, but I mean, he knew, he knew the history of the guys and, he knew a yeah, knowledgeable fan. 
yeah, he was a knowledgeable fan. He wasn't he wasn't overboard, but he he yeah. knew who was coming on and he was looking forward to it. And he'd explain it to me. And for the big fights, you know, he would he would treat me and and my brothers, and we, he would take us down uh, to those to those to those closed circuit uh, events. And and you know, I never forget that in the theater. You know, it was always hard to hear. Right. And it was always hard to hear, but my dad knew what was going on, and he would explain who was winning when we couldn't hear. Uh, either Cosell or Dumphy or whoever was calling the fights. Right. And, uh, it was. It was just. It was. It was something that uh, we looked forward to. And then, you know, as, as as I got older, he would go to the fights in the Caesars parking lot. Uh, he, in fact, one time yeah. he got pickpocketed there, and uh, he. Uh, <laughs> it was one of the stories that he loved to tell. At the, uh, you know, from uh, I, I believe it was the Ali Holmes fight. Uh, he he got pickpocketed <laughs> uh, going out of there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that provides you with a story that you can tell, right? Yeah, you're, not, you're annoyed you know, that it happened, but it gives you a good story. But he would go to all of those, and he would he would, yeah. he would fly from Denver, and uh, you know he would he would he would he would make it a weekend, and and so uh, it was it was just a great memory. I, I you know, and then when I started getting in, into sports casting, I, I remember those days, Al, when you and I would stand outside for ESPN literally on milk cartons yes in the parking lot of the las vegas hilton or at caesar's palace and i would be asking you questions to analyze the fight of something that we would have to leave early from right. to get out to the milk cartons in time for sports center uh, <laughs> so, i mean it was it was really it was really it was a, it was it was a it was a great great experience and and you know you taught me an awful lot and you were patient and I always appreciated that. You still are. No, we had fun. We had fun doing that. We had a good time. And, you know, people for, uh, don't realize, right, the, you know, ESPN has come such a long way. But back then, in the early 80s, uh, they were not exactly this high-powered uh, organization. And you're right. They'd get a milk carton or do whatever they would do whatever they could rig up a couple of times. Remember we were on top of a satellite truck with, I was just talking to David Brofsky and he was telling, reminding me of it. So those were, those, we were like doing community theater on TV, right? <laughs> I, yeah. And it was, and it, and it was Vegas. It was, I mean, we did the, uh, the, the, the Kwai fight in, in, in Atlantic city, uh, Dwight Muhammad Kwai fight. And, and, yeah. and, and I remember we couldn't get to where we had to go. So they threw us the equipment and they were lifting down the camera. And it was like, it was, it was I mean, <laughs> outside the convention center. But, you know, we didn't think anything of it. We were just no. trying to do our jobs and, and, and spread the information and share the interviews. You're right. We, we just thought, well, this is the way we, we it must be done. And we did it. We did it that way. Now, you... Um, you did, of course, as we said, you did your first interview with Muhammad Ali, but ironically, you would do his last interview on television, which is really, a, I mean, the the that is staggering when you think of that, uh, that that happened. Uh, how did that come about? Well, we went and we went in, uh, in 2004, I had an idea that I presented to ESPN that we should uh, gather America's greatest living Olympians and we should all get together and do a round table. And uh, I had done a few of these round tables before and uh, they had gone well. We had done uh, new school, old school with Larry Bird and, and Magic Johnson. Mm -hmm. And we got together with Carmelo Anthony and LeBron cool. James and we went to the original field house in Indiana. So we had had, we had had some shows that had garnered attention and had been successful and you know, really produce some interesting information. And so I, I, I suggested this to my bosses and they said, well, who can you get? And I said, well, let's get Muhammad Ali, Mary Lou Retton, Carl Lewis, who was still the most decorated track yeah. and field athlete of all time, and Ray Leonard, who patterned his whole life after Ali. So That's we, a pretty had good greatest, <laughs> we had the greatest and we had the best track and field. Yeah. And we had the woman who, you know, transformed women's yeah. gymnastics and in a lot of ways, women's sports in our country following sure. Nadia Comaneci and Olga Corbett and right. Mary Lou Retton, who had won in 84. And then, of course, Ray Leonard was an icon. And I said, you know, let's go and talk to Michael Phelps, who hadn't won a medal yet. And I say, why don't we bet on him since he's going to the Olympics with these expectations that someday 
not this day, but someday yeah. he will be uh, worthy of being in this group. So why don't we bet on that? Wow, and that's it, great. And and they said, yeah, let's do it. Now, I also asked Mark Spitz, and he declined. Mm. And I probably spoke to Mark Spitz 40 times about this. And he was polite, and he was courteous, and I had talked to him before. Yeah. I worked for Bud Greenspan, uh, who was the great historian and uh, sure. Olympic yeah. documentarian. And, uh, and, and he turned us down because he thought it was going to hurt his value during the games if, if, if Phelps broke that record. So anyway, oh, okay. be that as it may, we went up four nights before he left. Uh, the four of us went up to uh, Stanford to the pool, and we did the interview at the Stanford pool with Michael Phelps and the other four guys. Well, at the end of that interview, I said to Ali, uh, Muhammad, who would you like to fight next? And then he, he pointed to me meaning me. And, and I said, Oh, that's great. Uh, just what, you know, <laughs> we all laughed. And then we had these torches flown in from Athens, similar to the torch that Ali had lit in 96. And it was the official Athens torch. And he took that torch and he got up and the last words that he ever spoke on television were walked over to Michael, Michael walked to him and he said, I'm the greatest. You're the latest. It's up to you now. Go win all those medals. And he handed him the torch. Oh, that's great. That's great. And now Michael Phelps, to make a long story short, is the most decorated Olympian in the history of the Olympics. Yeah, fascinating. Wow, it's, it's amazing. It's just life, life is filled with synergistic moments that you, you can't script and you can't, you can't imagine uh, them happening on their own. And Lonnie, yeah. Ali, Lonnie Ali was great because... Lonnie Ali deserves tremendous credit. Lonnie Ali and Howard Biggin came with us. And, and she knew that Muhammad wanted to do this. And Muhammad obviously stated that he wanted to do this. And she understood the historical implication of having all of them together and what he would mean for that. And he just trusted the process enough. And, you know, obviously he was, he was battling Parkinson's. Right. And his speech, you know, wasn't, it, like it well anything like it was and uh, i believe we even had to put you know uh some of the closed captioning in right. Uh, right. on some of the things that he said uh, on that but just what his presence and the magnitude of it uh for that show and for the viewers and now you know we're able to look back at that and it, you know it's it's great just imagine if we'd have had ted williams babe ruth right lou gehrig yeah hank aaron all sitting together yeah. Talking about baseball. Well, that's what we had here regarding these Olympians. Yeah, it's comparable. Well, you had a you have had over the years a fascinating and unique relationship with uh, Mike Tyson. Uh, I think we can safely say that. And you go you go back to with him also in unguarded moments. And one of the great stories you tell in the book has to do with him in his younger days with he and Don King when he got into a fender bender outside the, uh, the MGM, tell, tell folks what happened when he got into a, just a little fender bender and what that meant for him and a security officer. Well, I was just by chance in Don King's office. This was the night before the Holyfield fight, not the ear biting, but the first one. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Don was writing out checks and he said, can you imagine I'm giving this guy $30 million before he fights? And he showed me the check to, to Tyson for $30 million. And it wasn't but five or 10 minutes later, Tyson walked in to pick up his check. Came in, picked up the check, thanked Don. Don said, please, just don't do anything stupid tonight. Don't get into any trouble. Don't do anything. And Mike said, no, no, it's not a problem. Of course not. So we walked with him out. And you know how that MGM Grand Garden is. You, you walk out and there's a big loading dock yeah. in the back. And we go out to the loading docks. And back in those days, you know, now they have these things that are automatic these security uh, uh, things that stop people from breaching an area uh, that, that they don't want them in. Back then, they used to be high fire hydrants that they lifted people, lifted yeah. them up. Okay. So when Tyson drove in, obviously, the coast was clear. Well, he backs out this brand new Lamborghini, and he dents it into one of these, like, fire hydrant security things, and he gets out. And, you know, it's 300 and something thousand dollar car back in 19... You know, 19, whatever that was, 97, 95. And, um, and, you know, 
no big deal. Maybe, maybe $1,500 of damage, just a little fender bender. But he was pissed. Takes the keys out. He's this goddamn MF, you know. And he throws the keys as hard as he can at the security guard. Take this effing car. Take this effing car right now. And then I are saying, oh, shit. Please. He's going to blow it right now. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna kill this guy. Well, this guy had put back in the thing. So the guy picks up the keys. He says, okay, Mr. Tyson, uh, you know, I'll go put it in, in, in the valley. He says, what don't you effing understand? Get this car away from me. It's bad luck. I got to fight tomorrow night. Don immediately jumps in. He says, brother, he's giving you that car. You take that car. I'll let your boss know you had a good afternoon and we'll get somebody to cover your spot. So this guy, this guy's a huge guy. This guy's 325, 50 plus, okay? He's trying to get into this little seat and he's like shoving himself in and he's trying to figure out how to start the car and you can oh. just see Tyson boiling. You know, you can just see, you know, that that anxiety and that anger anyway, the guy drives away. <laughs> and the Tyson gave him that $350,000 car right there. And, and you know, uh, about hour and a half later, Don and I were in the forum shops. We went to dinner and uh, uh, there's a whole commotion and they come and get Don. Well, Mike had gone shopping in one of those really fancy stores and he had bought $850,000 worth of pink shoes, orange oh scarves, all kinds of stuff. And he told Don to pay for it. Well, that was the custom. So Don says, well, give me back that check. So Don takes back the check, tells the people at the store, he'll take care of the bill, takes care of the bill. And Tyson comes back the next day and gets a check for you know, 29,200,000. Uh, but the second that he took all of that stuff out of there, it was worthless. I mean, I guess it was worthwhile if that's what you want to wear, but it had no value of, yeah. you know, and, but, but, but Mike didn't care about money. Mike, Mike, no. Mike honestly tells you, tells me, tells everybody, no matter who it is, he enjoyed his life and he enjoyed the moment. And whether it was with women or drugs or material possessions or whatever he did he doesn't regret those moments he loved those moments of being in that moment and so he just lived his life and it was a life of of extremes and we've seen yeah. it all yeah that's exactly. and that story indicates that as well as anything so the interesting thing is that the first part of his career uh when he was on espn I got to interview Mike Tyson constantly after every fight. Then he went over to HBO. And then for the last third or so of his career, he came to Showtime, where you uh, then were interacting with him on a, uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and that was the period of time when you really, you started to kind of have this uh, on-the-air camaraderie, if you will, or, or relationship with Mike Tyson. And you interviewed him during all these emotional moments. Uh, what was your secret or what do you think was your guiding principle in trying to get through the, uh, you know, all the volatility of Tyson at that time? You know, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure how to answer that, but I like Mike. I love Mike to this day. Yeah, you got along well with him. Yeah, I got or get along well with it. And 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 I always I always felt this, Al. I thought this was the most honest athlete I ever dealt with. Mm. Because he would take his medicine. He wasn't hiding behind some PR flack. He wasn't hiding behind the commission. He did something wrong. He didn't send his lawyer out. He came and he answered the questions. Now you may have hated the act. There were a lot of despicable, heinous things that he did, biting yeah. ears off right. in court for rape and, and that conviction. Um, you know, all kinds of things that he did that we all saw and witnessed, but he answered the questions and he never said, don't ask me. And he never snapped yeah. when he did ask him again, you know, he came out and he was accountable and responsible uh, for his behavior and for his actions. And even if they were excuses, they were responses. Yeah. Right. And, and who does that? True. Does that Not that much. Day? Interesting. And you're, of course, your most famous interview with him uh, and uh, one that will, you know, is, is a big part of, uh, uh, of broadcasting history is the interview you did with him following the ear biting incident. 
and you do a great job in the book of detailing uh, your thought processes that was going on and, and everything about it. That had to be a pretty extraordinary moment for you to deal with. Well, it was because, Al, how many times do we actually get to do something that you know they're going to play, replay, and you know that this is just part of the history of this sport? Right. I mean, you've done thousands upon thousands of fights. And uh, I'm behind you, but I, too, have done thousands of fights. Nothing sure, like yeah. that had happened. Nothing like that had happened before, and it hasn't happened since. No. no so right. I knew when I went to do this interview, if he came out, that you know, I better not screw this up. Right. And, 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 and thankfully I didn't because, you know, I knew that this was going to have an impact. It was going to be played to the commission. It was going to be played to the opponents. It was going to be on every station everywhere. And we didn't know there was going to be YouTube back then. And we didn't know that the internet was going to exist. And right. we didn't know that it was going to have that type of a life, but we just knew that, you know, uh, this was, this was, you know, uh, an Ali kind of moment. I, I shook up the world, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, the giants win the pennant. I, I don't want right, to overemphasize right. it because I think that, that I think that Steve Albert captured it immediately yeah. when he said he bit his ear. I mean, he captured it in the moment that it happened. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it just, it just was something that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, we all walk away every night and every broadcast that we're on, we all go and have pizza or something. And in playing in your head, you're thinking about right. what those two and a half hours have been. Exactly. You know, what did I say? What didn't I say? Yeah, Why right. didn't I say this? Why did I stumble on this word? How come right. I didn't think of that? Oh gosh, I should have done that. Well, it's the, it's really, it's really the only time I've walked away where I said, you know what? None of that happened. None of that happened. And David Dinkins to work with. David Dinkins, who we work with, right. was fantastic that night because one of David's great qualities is that he trusts his people. Okay, yeah. well, he didn't interrupt me. He trusted that I had it. And if I'd have missed something, he would have told me. And he didn't tell me to go to a highlight or he didn't say, ask this. He just let right. me listen to Mike. And by letting me listen, he showed his brilliance. Because a lot of guys wouldn't do that. They would be excited to want to run in the yeah. highlighter. They would be excited to say, get to That's this. That's really a good point. Or whatever. And he was fantastic. And the whole crew was, was fantastic. You know, we get credit for things, you know, when, when something goes well, because we're on camera. Right. But the photographer that night was assaulted. Okay. He was knocked down by, by Tyson's gang of, of leaving or the police could have even been the police. We don't know. He got run over with his camera. Okay. Oh, he didn't have to go do that interview. If he'd have gone no. home, everybody would have understand. Right but he came and he showed up and it was in focus and it was, and he was zoomed in at the right time. So, I mean, we're all dependent upon each other and it was just a great night by showtime for all the wrong reasons. And, and it was, you know, I've always been grateful to Mike. He came out and did that interview and he always did. Yeah. Which he could have gone the other way too. He could have demurred and not done it. And, uh, and it created a great, uh, a great moment. You and uh, you write a, You have a little passage in the book about an interesting moment that we shared, uh, and it involves Mike Tyson uh, at the MGM Grand, uh, where it was you, your wife Fran, your lovely wife Fran, who's one of my favorite people on the planet, uh, and and me, uh, and we were just kind of standing there. Uh, it was before all the fights. It was some fight that we were at was going to start, and we. We all of a sudden that spot became uh, a magnet for some interesting visits. We had you and I both had a visit from our past that could have gone a different way, but ended up going the right way. Explain what happened in that in that moment. Well, you and I were walking in, and 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 here comes Pete Rose. And I had obviously had this contentious interview with Pete yeah. Rose in 1999. And uh, I think I'd seen Pete a couple of times, but we really haven't, we yeah. really haven't spoken. Uh, it was so, so I'm thinking, oh gosh. And I'm saying to Fran, oh boy, here we go. And uh, you, and Pete, of on course, the other hand. Yeah, Pete knows me from my wife and uh, her sister having performed, uh, her dad, her stepdad was the, uh, uh, the, um, 
uh, scout for the Cincinnati Reds, and Pete's known me over the years. So, so he's a big hello to Al Bernstein, right? And here you are. And, and you and him have a great relationship. Yes, so, exactly. Know, so here we are at this uncomfortable moment. He's hugging you. And then, you yeah. know, he kind of, he sticks out <laughs> his hand. And I kind of just looked at his hand because he had never, you know, really said anything right. to me, except for in his book, he said that he, he, he had, he had lied, but there was no reason for him to tell the truth is what he said in his, uh, my prison without bars, uh, in the book that he had written. And so, you know, we really hadn't communicated and, you right. know, there was a lot that had gone on. This was many, many years later. And so I kind of just looked at his hand and then he said, he said, you don't have to be afraid of me. And I said, well, maybe it's vice versa. Remember I said <laughs> that? Maybe it's vice versa. And anyway, I shook his hand and, and we exchanged pleasantries and, you know, it was fine. It was uncomfortable, but it was fine. Well, lo and behold, as we're talking, here comes Mike Tyson. Well, if I have a tough relationship with Pete Rose over the years, it's it's only equaled or greater the tougher yeah. relationship that you have with Mike Tyson. I, I had some interesting moments with him over the years, yeah. So I hug Mike Tyson. <laughs> Fran hugs Mike Tyson. And there's Mike, and he kind of looks at you. And it's not too dissimilar. Yeah. He kind of, like, didn't want to do anything. Right. But one of the two of you initiated, and he shook hands. Right. And then he and then he gave me a big hug. So it was like, okay, we got through that. And I remember when when they left, I remember turning to 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 Fran. Either you said it or I said it. I don't know who said it. We said, you know what? This there must be something special about this spot, right? And what we need to do is get the Israelis and the Arabs over here to try and settle their differences right on this spot because they'll definitely figure it out. I can see that spot. It's right by that little stand, right where you come in, and it's before yeah. you go into the main doors of, of the Grand, uh, where you actually walk into the arena. It's it's kind of like where we have our those conference rooms. I can still right. see that moment. <laughs> you know, that the next day, funny. the next day, the next day, we were walking into forum shops, and I hear, "Hey, Jim, what do you think about that fight? That was really something." Well, Pete was signing autographs, and now That's he's like my old lost friend, and he calls me over, and we spoke a few more minutes. If you fast forward all these years, when I wrote the book, Talking to Goats, uh, we did a special. Uh, Fox was nice enough to give me a special. And uh, so we went back and talked to a lot of the goats, uh, Dr. J and Tom Brady and, and so forth. Um, and, and I just thought, you know what, maybe I should call Pete Rose. So I called Pete and he agreed to do the interview. And we did an hour and 15 minute interview uh, for the special. And uh, uh, he, he was really really something he, he was you know quite forthright and said that he had handled the moment wrong and uh you know and he also said that he still bets on baseball uh only legally now uh through casinos as he lives in las vegas but it yeah. was it was it was really interesting at the end of it he held up the book he held up the book and he he said you see this right here i'm gonna rip out the chapter on me uh but this this is a great book. Jim's talked to all the goats, every single goat, maybe we even talked to Babe Ruth. So I hope it sells a million copies. Just don't oh, read my nice. chapter. <laughs> very, very nice. Yeah, you, you know, um, the the book, I should say here, uh, add, add again, as I did earlier in the show, uh, is a wonderful read. And, uh, and of course, we concentrated more here on the boxing part of it for all the obvious reasons this show is about boxing. But you will get, you know, uh, whether it's Tom Brady or, or Michael Jordan or any of the other great athletes that, uh, that Jim has stories about, it will be uh, it will uh, it will be impressive to you and almost as impressive as uh, you you mention in you casually mention in the book that Muhammad Ali showed up for your 50th birthday party at the Palms, which was a surprise party that Fran had put on for you. And uh, I remember uh, when I was standing there with my wife, Connie, and, you know, the, it was a pretty high powered group that uh, she had assembled there for your for your uh for your party you know don shula jerry west eric dickerson i could go on and name 30 larry king could name 38 other a-list celebrities and then at one point i was looking at the elevator and i turned to connie and i said well i said i think this is this is definitely an a-list celebration because at that moment muhammad ali had walked out of off the elevator 
to come into the party. I said, you know, if you have Muhammad Ali at a party, I, I said, I think it's significant. Well, it was great that he came. Uh, you know, from that first interview, um, he was just, he was just really special to me in my life. And, uh, you know, and, and, and Bob Arum, Bob Arum, you know, they put that interview up they, at ABC. They had something called DEF daily electronic feed. So all the ABC stations would send their best stuff out. So, uh, DEF put that out, uh, of that interview and, uh, it went all across the nation and Ali saw it. And so Ali would then invite me or make sure that I was credentialed to go to the rest of his public appearances or fights. So he let me interview him all those times, you know, uh, going forward. And it was toward the end of his career, obviously. There was the right. two Jinks fights and, you know, there was Holmes and there was Burbick and there were some other, you know, some other events and so forth that he did. The Alzado fight, he came back and did. But he let me interview him all the time. Well, Bob Arum saw that. And Bob Arum saw that, you know, this was... Uh, you know, something that, that had caught on. And so he, he hired me to work for him to, he, he would do these satellite interviews. Bob was way ahead of it. He would put yeah. up these satellite interviews a week before the fight. And he would give me access to all these guys, you know, Ali, Hagler, Hearns. It didn't matter who it was, Durant. And he would hire me and we would put these out. Well, that meant that all the reporters didn't have to come to Vegas. Exactly. Have, yeah. Right. Didn't have to travel. So he was, you know, he was so, so smart. And, and so Don King saw it. So that's really how I got my start in boxing. But, you know, uh, Ali, uh, just, you know, we, we became friends just because of, of, of that first interview. And, uh, you know, he, 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 you know, he wanted to give young people a chance. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was me because I did that interview. But no matter where you went with him, he had time for everybody. Yeah. And he he would always display it. I never saw the guy in a hurry. I never right. saw the guy blow or brush anybody off. And it didn't matter whether it was a chairman of the board or a janitor or a kid or someone in a wheelchair. He would do magic tricks for them. He would talk to them. He would walk up. He used to love to do this thing where, you know, he had he had, you know, wonderful hands, but they would get dry and he would come up and he would do this thing in the back of somebody's ear, you know, if they were sitting at a table and they jump and turn around and then they'd see that it was him, you know, it was like a cricket in your hand yeah, yeah. and, and, you know, you know, I tell some of the stories in the book because some of the, some of the special times that we had, but he was just so good with people. And so, you know, it was, it was, uh, and, and Lonnie, Lonnie was terrific. Lonnie was uh, just spectacular in the way that uh, she loved Muhammad and took care of Muhammad uh, through all of those years and uh, now takes care of the center in, in Louisville. And so uh, uh, we, we all stayed in, in great touch. And, you know, it was, uh, it, it was one of the unexpected things in life. If you would have ever told me that I would have ever talked to Muhammad Ali when I was a little kid, uh, let alone become his friend and have him at my 50th birthday party. I would have told you, you know, no, that that's somebody else's dream. That That's not happening here. Pretty amazing. Well, you, uh, the book is a delightful read. I, I strongly endorse it to everyone. And uh, I hope it's a huge success. And uh, you, you, uh, you make it clear at the end, you're never writing another one. So this is the only one they're going to get. So they have to buy this one because it's the only one they're getting. But uh, it's it's just filled with great stories. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me. Al, thank you. Thank you for having me on. You've been a great friend, a great colleague. You've taught me a lot. You wrote a book. Are you writing another one or was one enough? I don't You know what? I think about it every once in a while. And then I think, well, and, you know, it, it's so time consuming, as you know, that I, I think, uh, do I want to, you know, commit to that or not. So maybe at some point I will, but, uh, uh, but I think, I think now we're probably, we're probably uh, stuck at one, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, so much reading uh, the stories you had. They were, they were great. And, uh, and, and I, 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 I think you did a good job of conveying to people the essence of, you know, I thought the title was great talking to goats because you're, you, you were talking to greatest of all time, and I think you did a good job of conveying uh, what it feels like to be around those kind of people and absorb what they have to say. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable bunch of folks. It's been great, and and I, I really got to thank Greg Bishop, uh, Greg Bishop of Sports Illustrated. Excellent writers. Perfect. 
he did a great job and he you know this this you know this took three years and you know there's thousands upon thousands of events and interviews oh. you know and so forth so uh I, it was just thank god i had him because he was he was yeah he's a really a wonderful wonderful writer and i think he compliments he's the kind of guy complimented your uh style of storytelling as well so i think that was a that was a, a great thing well i will look forward to seeing you as we continue and have a great summer of boxing on showtime we're very excited about the the schedule we got coming up so we're all going to be busy running around with fans in the in the stands which is great we're coming back to California, and then we got, uh, I think, Houston on the schedule, and yeah. Atlanta, and then we got Floyd Mayweather in, in Miami, so it's, Go it's figure. a lot of fun. Yeah, we're going to have a good time. Hey, thanks, Jim. Thanks, Al. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So that was my conversation with Jim Gray. Uh, I, I heartily endorse uh, you getting his book, Talking to Goats. It's a terrific uh, read, and there's a lot of interesting stories, and the one that he and I talked about toward the end of that interview that the moment we shared at the MGM Grand, uh, I thought was a, a fun story uh, with Mike Tyson and uh, Pete Rose. Uh, it was really hysterical because at that moment, uh, we avoided uh, disaster twice. Um, and uh, you never know how those things are going to work out. You don't. And Jim has upset some people in his career. You've very rarely, but Mike Tyson wasn't a big member of your fan club at the time. No, not at the moment. Yeah, for some <laughs> reason. And yeah, you're right. Jim has had, certainly, he has done more pointed interviews where there's been probably some, uh, you know, some pushback. But uh, but it was that one was interesting. So we managed to uh, get past that one. And I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jim. I thought it, there were a lot of great stories recounted. Now, we do you ever, uh, just, have another question we, for me. Sure. Before we get to oh, the yeah. question, do you, do you ever pinch yourself when you're sitting at the lobby of the MGM and Pete Rose, arguably one of the two or three most famous baseball players of all time, comes up to you, Mike Tyson... <laughs> one of the two or three greatest or most yeah. notorious athletes of all time come up to you and they, they just want to hang with you and Jim. Is that kind of a, a surreal feeling? Yeah, it's interesting. Right. And, uh, and, and in this case, there were those extra dynamics, but even without those, it's intriguing. And that's, you know, part of, I think in that conversation with Jim, we both kind of were alluding to it, you know, the fact that you wouldn't even have expected to know, to meet these people, let alone, you know, count them as people that know you and that you have a relationship with. And it is it is pretty extraordinary, you know, and, and that's one of the things about uh, chronicling the world of sports is that you you are, uh, you know, you do get to meet and know all these people, some more fascinating than others. And uh, and it's a yeah. So sometimes you have to I think you do have to take a step back. Uh, I don't know how anyone could be jaded to it. Maybe, I guess there are some, but uh, it, it it seems impossible to me. Yeah. And one of the things, not to give you a compliment, but you <laughs> don't do that, whatever you, you do. Realize, OK, but you realize that people aren't there to see you do the call. You're there to right. call the event and let the stars be the stars. Yeah, we're there. I, the, uh, yes. I mean, that's we talk about that a lot on this show. And that's a philosophy that I believe in wholeheartedly. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 of course, I want to make a difference in enhancing that event for them. Uh, and when I am the focus of attention, whether it's during an on-camera period or, or some other time, I want to make my mark and, and, and not just be wallpaper. But when you're doing an event, it is not about you at all. It's about the, it's about the athletes. And, uh, and I believe that, uh, the athletes appreciate that when it's uh, approached that way. Fantastic. Okay. We've got a question from Reggie Dunlop, who was Paul Newman's character, by the way. In <laughs> That's Slapshot. right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what was the best hometown fight crowd you've ever experienced? Oh, yeah. I've, you know, I've seen a lot of them, needless to say, over the years. Um, but one night kind of stands out to me. It was uh, uh, 2005 at the MEN Arena in Manchester, uh, England. And it was a fight between Ricky Hatton, uh, who was an undefeated 140-pound uh, contender at the time, against Costa Zoo, uh, of course, a, 
a giant in the sport of boxing and uh, the 140-pound champion at the time. And uh, Costa Zoo, you know, was 35, and this was the, I think, the 19th uh, or the 18th, 19th uh, world title match that he'd been involved in. His record to that point was 17-1 and one in world title matches. And, and even at 35, while he was in the hot twilight of his career, was clearly still a fighter to be reckoned with, had shown no signs of his talent diminishing. And, you know, Ricky Hatton went into the fight, a pretty big underdog, uh, but Costa Zoo went over to his part of the world, and what he faced was a crowd that was unbelievable. You know, uh, the passion and the zeal of that crowd was something. Now, I'm not one that puts much stock in the idea that that that's going to create an upset unto itself, that the support of the hometown fans is always going to carry somebody to a victory. But in this instance, I, I was taken by the whole atmosphere and what it seemed to represent. And I, I turned to the stage manager and I said, you know, it feels almost like something could happen here tonight. You know, there's some magic in the air. I never say things like that. And for, apparently there was because Ricky Hatton fought a terrific fight. It was still a very close fight, but a, but one in which Ricky Hatton seemed to have the upper hand. And uh, Costa Zoo did not come out for the 12th round. And that was the last time we would see Costa Zoo as a fighter. And uh, Ricky Hatton won the world championship. And it was uh, an extraordinary night. One of the most amazing nights I have ever experienced in the, uh, in the sport of boxing. And it was, uh, it was truly staggering. And uh, that, to me, is a home crowd, you know, doing some amazing things. Uh, we want to mention to you that uh, our friend Tommy Ankello, who has his... Uh, Web, his uh, YouTube channel, World Class Boxing, uh, a great uh, uh, YouTube site that has uh, videos that are informational, educational, and also historical about the sport of boxing. You want to go over and check that out. It's, uh, it's excellent. You can see our show over there when, uh, when you're on that, uh, on that channel as well. Um, well, we want to uh, thank uh, Jim Gray for being on with us today. Uh, on this edition. Uh, it was very enjoyable to chat with him and hear his stories. His book, uh, Talking to Goats, is out now. And again, I recommend it. It's a terrific book. My thanks to Trip, as always, for doing his great job. And my thanks to you for watching. Without you, uh, there'd be no point in this show. Uh, and uh, thanks to the Let's Do Something production folks for making this possible. We'll see you next time.